All right. Good morning, everybody. So let's just say I'm so excited to be here. It feels kind of like nervous, but I'm pretending that it's excited. <laughs> so <laughs> Pastor Dusty says, you know, they're the same feeling. So this must be excitement. Um, amen. Amen. Um, so I want to talk about something. About three weeks ago, Dusty challenged us with a question about where we wanted to be or who, I don't know what the first word of the question was, in five years. And I've really been thinking about that a lot, and that's what I kind of want to talk to you about today. Um, after I heard the message and I went home and was thinking about I didn't really remember what the first word was. Was it, where do you want to be in five years? Was it, what do you want to be in five years? Was it, who do you want to be in five years from now? I couldn't remember, so when I was first thinking about it, I thought it was what? And I started trying to answer the question for myself, what do I want to be in five years? And I was really having a hard time with that. What do I want to be in five years? What? Because what, I don't know, it's like, what job do I want to be doing? What, you know, what? I, I couldn't, I really couldn't answer that. And so I just kept struggling with it, and it was going over and over. And, and the Lord began to reveal to me that the world values what we are, what we're doing, what we do, what we say. And I was asking the right, and I felt like the Lord showed me I was asking the wrong question. It's not what do I want to be, but it's who do I want to be in five years? Who do we want to be? Because God values who we are. And really, in God's economy, if we are who he envisioned us to be when he created us, then it doesn't matter so much what we're doing. We can be plugged into almost any position, any place, anywhere, as long as we're the who. So as I, I kind of, it's kind of been a journey for me in, in thinking about that. Who do I want to be? And so I, um, I got to, to looking in the Word, and I was thinking about people of God, and, and how did they answer this question, and, and what's my role? Because when I think about it, I know that God has a plan. So I want, to, I want us to start in Ephesians chapter 1 and look at some scripture. Um. I'm reading in the Message Bible, and I'm going to kind of take this slow because I'm going to read um, several verses here. Ephesians 1, um, starting with verse 3, I think is where, yeah, verse 3. It says, how blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and he takes us to the highest places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. When I read that, it's like it helps me realize, you know, I didn't get here by accident. Sometimes in life we feel like we're maybe a small fish in a big pond, as the saying goes. Are we, you know, are we that important? Do, do we make a difference? Does it matter what I choose? Like Dylan said, does it matter what choices I make? Does it really make a difference? Does it really matter? But when I read this, before he laid down the earth's foundations, he had me in mind. He had a plan for who I would be. He had a vision of who I would be. He had a vision of who you would be, of who you could be. You know, when we, as those of you that are parents, when we have a child and, and that child is born and we, we are holding them, we're looking at them, we're watching them grow up, we're seeing their strengths, we're seeing the things that they struggle with, we, we begin to see their personality blossom, and we, we begin to develop a vision of man, just who they could be. You know, how cool. Ooh, did you see that? She's just so outgoing or, you know. He's just so, you know, serious or, you know, we're, we begin to get that vision and we love that child. They're, they're, a, um, they're us, they're, they're, a, they're a piece, they have a piece of us and, and we get excited and we vision what, and we love them and we enjoy watching and seeing and knowing them and know who they're going to be. That's how God did. He created us. We're made in his image. We're made after his likeness and he knows what we can be. He knows that the potential, that's what we're looking at, that potential. 
the potential in those children that God's given us. We watch them grow and we love. Now, you know, if as our child grows up, we know that sometimes they may not always live up to the potential, the good, that good potential that we were seeing in them. You know, sometimes our little children will tell us lies. That's not what we were envisioning when we were holding them before they could even talk. So, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll make other choices. They'll, they'll go their own way. But do we stop loving them? No, we still know who they could be. We still know that potential. We still see them through those eyes of love and potential. And that's how God does with us. He's created us and he had a vision before the foundations of earth. He knew each of us by name and he had that vision of who we could be, what we could do in his kingdom, how we could be. So there he is. Just in that part, I wanted it to be a reminder that he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. We were going to be the focus of his love. You know, he made the earth and he made the animals, in it, but it was us that was going to be the focus of his love. And then down to the next set of verses, it says, because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're a free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. So we think about that child and he told that lie and, you know, he did a misdeed, Okay. But because of the blood of Jesus, God even, he envisioned us. He saw the potential. He created us knowing he was going to lavish his love. And then he knew that we, we, there'd be misdeeds. So he even had a plan for that. And, but I wanted to say, it says, and not just barely free either. We're free of the penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. So that baby that's born a perfect, you know, being that's just so sweet and cuddly and, and all that. And then, there will be some misdeeds sometimes. We're born into this world and we're all the, just a bundle of potential of everything that God thought we could. And it's all different. You know, I don't have the same potential as Wanda does. Or, you know, we all have different potential. He sees something different in, in each of us. But, so we have misdeeds. We're born into a world that's full of sin. We're, we're born where we make choices to not do the right thing, to, to, to sin against God. We're born into this world where other people make choices to sin against us. And so there becomes, you know, there becomes the, the, the trauma, the damage, if you will, that happens as we're growing up. And so, wow, what does that do to the vision? Can, can we still be the people of God? Can we still walk out that vision that he's, he's called us? Can a child who tells a lie, can they still become that person? Well, of course. When we think of it in that way, we think, yeah, of course. We can, we'll teach our child and we'll forgive them and we'll love them through it and we'll make it right and we'll, you know, whatever the thing is, there's, there's, a, there's a plan that we can get over this. But sometimes in the kingdom of God, with the misdeeds, things that have been, wrongs that have been committed against us or wrongs that we've committed, we get to a point and we think, well... I just might have messed up the plan of God, the vision that he had. Maybe I can never fulfill it. Maybe I can't walk in the purpose that God had for me. Maybe I can't be who he's called me to be. Maybe I messed up too much. Maybe somebody else ruined the plan. I had somebody years ago, um, we were youth pastoring, and, and this lady said that, uh, that God had called her to something. She told me God had called her to some things, and she said, but somebody else had messed up the plan of God for her life. And I was like, whoa. And I went home and I thought, and this was an older you know, woman, I thought, well, maybe that's right. And I really struggled with it. But if, if somebody else can mess up the plan of God for my life, what hope is there? You know, if, and, and what I realized is there, that wasn't the truth. She may have felt like that. And somebody could have done something that actually kind of knocked her off, off balance for a little while. But it was really going to be her choice from that moment on, whether she let that person keep her knocked off course, or whether she became an active participant in the plan of God. If, as long as she, as she or we or I embrace the idea that somebody else can mess up God's plan for me, I won't walk in it. I have to be an active participant in the plan of God. He's got to like, how many, if you'll think for a minute, do you think that every person ever born has successfully become the person God envisioned them to be when he created them? No. People have fallen short. 
I would venture to say that probably the majority of people do not fulfill his vision of who he thought that they could be. Do you think that would be God's fault? Is he not powerful enough to bring that to pass? To bring that, Or do you think that might be the person's fault? Because we have to be a participant in bringing that vision to pass. I think if I don't fulfill the vision that God had for me in this life, it's because I allowed myself to maybe believe some lies, like this person can mess up God's plan for me, or any number of lies. Maybe I messed up so bad myself, or maybe I'm just going to kind of sit here and just wait on it to knock me upside the head, and poof, I'll all of a sudden be who that person is. Because there's, there's a walking out. The Scripture says that we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So we're working it out. We're walking it out. Just like that baby, when you have this, this child and you're, you know, seeing her, well, if they just decide, you know what, I'm just going to lay in the crib from now on out and you've got a plan for me and I'm sure it'll all work out. It won't work out. They're not going to learn to walk. They're not going to learn to use the potty. They're just going to, you know, lay over there and be alone. So, so they have to be an active participant in their life. It's their life. And, you know, you're there for guidance and training and, you know, and help and advice and what God is there for us. He's provided everything we need and he's made us free. So, um, and in that part, I always go back to this because this is a big, you know, big thing with me. As we go through this life, we get damaged. People hurt our feelings. People do things to us that then we're, try, we, then we're either going to, you know, hate them or want revenge or we're going to have to figure out how to forgive somebody that doesn't really maybe deserve forgiveness. We're going to have to figure out how to walk through almost, the life is, can be almost like a minefield. We're walking through this minefield trying to figure out how to navigate. And, we can, you know, we get to choose. Do we want to have that, uh, well, we hear it, attitude of gratitude, you know, we can either be thankful for the things God has given us, the things, or we can be worried about what we don't have. We can either be forgivers of people that, you know, have wronged us, or we can, we can hold on to that, and we can say, well, I'm not going to let that go. And, and we're developing who we're going to be, but it's not, you know, and some people say, oh, well, it's their fault, it's their fault, it's their fault, it's his fault. Yeah, maybe somebody else did it. Maybe they did, they did something that messed messed up your life, it might be their fault, but it's become your problem. You're going to have to figure out what to do with it. You want to hang on to it and fall short of the vision that God has for your life, or can you rise above it? So um, I'm going to go back to the scripture. We're not just barely free either. We're abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. So he knew stuff was going to happen. He knew the kid was going to... We knew the kid was going to lie. And we still chose to have him. He knew that stuff was going to happen. But he provided everything we could possibly need. That means he made a way for us to be healed. For us to be whole. We start out whole and then sin enters in. And we're not whole anymore. We're broken. But, we can, but he made a way. It's not... Um, that now, oh, you're broken, and now you're just broken. I work with uh, students that are special needs students, and um, all the children in my school are there because they have behavior problems. And our society says, well, these, these children have been broken, might be because of events that happened in their past or the homes that they were raised in, or you know some you know some or or just something that's inside their their heads or their bodies or their brains and so basically these are broken people and the and and our society doesn't have a cure for that doesn't have a fix for them we'll put these all these students almost every single one is on medications and they'll and the plan is that they'll be on those medications for the rest of their lives to deal with the brokenness of their life to deal but when I read this verse about he's provided everything we could possibly, he made us free from that sin and he's provided everything we could possibly need, that says to me that there's nobody that's broken to the point that they can't be healed. God has provided healing. 
there's healing for our bodies, but there's healing for our mind and healings for our, healing for our souls. Um, it says, he, let, he, let, he lets us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us. He had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he's working out in everything and everyone. How about that? It's in Christ we find out who we are and what we're living for. He had designs on us for glorious living. Sometimes when I evaluate my life, I might not call it glorious living. You know, every day and I get up and I'm going, you know, is this, is, is this that glorious living? You know, I might not suggest, you know, think of it as glorious living, but that's the design. That's the plan. That's where we're going. God has his eye on us for glorious living. It's part of the overall purpose he's working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that you, oh, I read that. Um, you heard the truth and believed it, this message of your salvation. You found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. This signet from God is the first installment on what's coming. So we, as I look around, I think most all of us have heard the truth. We've believed it. We've walked into the door of salvation it's stage one. It's just the first step. This signet, this signing that, you know, we're his, we belong to him, is the first installment on what's coming, a reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us, a praising and glorious life. Then Paul says, that's why when I heard of the solid trust you have in the Master Jesus and your outpouring of love to all the Christians, I couldn't stop thanking God for you. Every time I prayed, I'd think of you and give thanks. But I do more than thank. I ask. I ask the God of our Master Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally. It's an amazing, amazing prayer. To make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally. Because it's really only as we know him that we can know ourselves as an extension of him. If we, the more we know him, the better we can understand ourselves and know ourselves. And then it says, it's continuing on to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally, your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what it is he's calling you to do. Oh. Paul's praying that these people would be intelligent and discerning in knowing God personally, their eyes focused and clear. I think it's as we focus on God that our eyes do become focused and clear. I read a book a couple of weeks ago, and the author said that there was a bit, and you've heard this, and you know this to be true, there's a big difference between perception and reality. And, you know, I've heard it said that you are what you believe. And, you know, our perception is our, is kind of becomes our reality. But perception and reality are not necessarily the same thing. If I think I'm the Queen of England and I'm really just Susan Rutherford from Waco, Georgia, there's, there's a problem with my perception. And, you know, I can do things that I don't even know what the Queen of England does, but I could try to tell people to do things as if I'm the Queen of England, but it's not going to work because I'm not the Queen. So, so my perception would be a false or an untrue perception. Okay. It said, or this book said, that your the, the closer your perception and reality are, the saner you are. And so I think if we all really got down to it, we all have maybe some blind spots, we like to call them, instead of insanity. We also have these areas where we think, or we pretend to ourselves that I'm the, you know, you'll meet somebody and they'll start describing themselves to you sometimes, and you think, Wow. That's not at all what you would think, who you would think that they were. They don't have a good sense of perception. You know, their perception of who they are does not line up with the reality of who they really are. So, you know, I think it's important, as Paul's saying, he said, you know, I want, I want you to focus on God so that your eyes would be focused and clear. We get our sense of reality 
from God. As we go to him, he'll show us what the reality is. Because we believe lies sometimes. People tell us things. We think that's the truth. We go, you know, we, we're going on that. We're making choices about our life. We're going, and it may not be reality. It might be an erroneous perception that we have. And as we operate on, on those perceptions that are not true, they don't work in our lives. You know, if I, if I, if I convince myself somehow that I am an outgoing extrovert, and, you know, and I were to tell y'all, stand up here and tell y'all, I'm an outgoing extrovert, and most of y'all would think, she doesn't have very much insight, okay? But you might not tell me that, because if I want to think that, well, you know, to each his own, right? So, so if I, then I'm going to try to live my life being this outgoing extroverted person instead of being okay with, so I'm always going to be in this place of not really being myself. I have to kind of put on. If I think that's who I am or if I think that's who I need to be, then I have to try to pretend, pretend like I'm up and I'm excited and hey you and hey, you know, and flit around to, you know, and to do this thing that's not really me. That's not, that's not real, reality for me. And it's, it would be very exhausting. And after about, oh, I'd give it five minutes, <laughs> I'd be like, okay, I'm tired of that. I don't want to see another person for a week, you know. But if, if I'm operating under that assumption that this is who I am, this is who I need to be, this is who God called me to be, if I'm operating under that assumption and I just can't do it, I've used all my strength and I'm at the end of my rope and I can't, you know, be any more outgoing than, you know, what I am, I might try to look for something to help me be more outgoing. Hmm. What can help me be more outgoing? A Red Bull. I've heard that that can help. I've never drank a Red Bull, but I think that if I drank a Red Bull, y'all probably would not recognize me and I would probably would not recognize myself. So, but I can manipulate myself for a certain period of time into becoming somebody that I'm not, somebody that I want to be, somebody that I'm trying to be, but I will make myself insane. And probably most everybody that I know, because it's not, it, the, the, my perception that I'm trying to walk out is not reality for me. It's not who God created me to be. So for me to try to keep pushing that, pushing that, pushing that, I'm going to make myself crazy. And crazy is, you know, insane, mental illness. We, we, we live in a nation with such a problem with mental illness. And that, that's things like, um, you know, you go, she's crack, crack, you know. But it's, I mean, it's depression. Eventually, you hit a wall when you're trying to be who you're not called to be. When you're trying to, you're going to hit a wall and just, you know, crash and burn. Or, you know, it can be um, psychotic. Or what are other forms of depression? Split personality, you know, split personalities and uh, sociopaths. And what else is there, Rachel? Something, is there something else? Schizophrenia. All those kind of, you know, all those kind of things. Um, pathological liars. You know, you know that. People that lie for no good reason. This is like, you know, yeah, I was wearing a yellow jacket yesterday. And they weren't. Why do they have to say that? Nobody cared. Nobody asked. Why, you know, why do you, they just want to, you know, they just lie. So, so there becomes that break in, break in our mental capacity, break in reality. Okay, but the remedy for this is that um, that God, if we know him personally, if we press into knowing him personally, he will cause our eyes to be focused and cleared. As we get together with God, he'll say, Susan, daughter, I did not make you to be an extrovert. That is not who I called you to be. That is not what I placed in you. Be good with who I called you to be because I have a purpose and I have a vision, and I have a plan for your life, I'll show you what it is, and, and you, can walk, you, know, you can walk it out from there. And I can be okay then with, you know, who I, who I really am. Maybe, you know, if somebody, my mother used to tell me, my mother used to tell me growing up, I was so shy growing up that uh, we'd go to the grocery store, and I'd see some kid from my class. It used to embarrass me to death, just to see a kid that was in my class at the store. And they'd say, hey, Susan, the kid, they'd be say, hey, Susan. And I'd be like, I just wanted to die rather than speak. My mother would fuss at me, say, hey, say, hey. And I'd like hide behind her leg, you know. And I, I mean, I'm five, six, seven years old. You know, this is not a little bitty kid. And so 
she'd fuss at me the whole way home. You embarrass me so bad. Every time we go somewhere and you won't talk to anybody, what is wrong with you? And, you know, so I could have gotten a message that that's not acceptable, which, you know, I mean, it doesn't hurt to say hi to anybody. I mean, I get, <laughs> I get it. But at the same time, you know, you can internalize those things and blow them up out of proportion so that you're trying to be somebody totally that, you know, is not you. If you, you know, if you believe that, you know, that is unacceptable. So, um, anyway, just a little side note on there. It says, um, so that you can see exactly what he's calling you to do, grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for Christians. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from the dead, from death, and set him on the throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule, and not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. So that little bit just tells you what he can do, what he has done, what he can do. So to put that in perspective, it's a small, you know, he's, he has no problem letting you in on who you're supposed to be, what your purpose is, who he's called you to be, and what he's... I'll say who he's called you to be because, you know, the premise is that he's more interested in the who. Um, So we need to connect to God to be healed and to realize that he has a vision for us. Then we need to know the vision he has and we can put systems in place to help us move in the direction of the vision. Um, I was going to look briefly at the life of David. Um, It's found in... First Samuel, starting in chapter 16, and I'm going to kind of go quickly through this because I want to sort of summarize. I, ch- I was just going to pick somebody from the Bible to think about um, God's vision for them and how and what they did, you know, how they kind of walked it out. And we have so much written about David, so I picked him. And then when I got to looking, I'm like, oh, this is this is so much. But um, anyway, if you'll remember, there in First uh, Samuel 16. Um, God spoke to the prophet Samuel and he said, I've rejected King Saul and I want to anoint another king and I want you to go down to the house of um, Jesse and anoint me a king. So as the story goes, he gets down there and uh, Jesse has eight sons and David is the youngest. So they bring, they begin to, Jesse begins to bring the sons in front of Samuel to, you know, he's going to anoint him to be the king of the nation. He's not from the right family, and it's not from the right, you know, it's, this is not how it's done. The king, the current king's son is supposed to be the next king. So they're bringing the sons, and God's saying, not this one, not this one, not this one, everyone, not this one, not this one, not this one. And they said, well, that's it, seven sons. Do you not have any more? Well, we've got David, but, you know, he's the runt. He's, you know, he's the baby. He's out in the pasture looking after the sheep. So David's off doing a job. He's the youngest one. He's off doing a job that probably all the other sons had done before him. You know, when he got to be, I don't know what age that, you know, but probably at a young age, they'd, they'd just watch after the sheep, go out and watch after the sheep. And then, then the next one would come along, and it was kind of like, well, you get to do something else, and then, you know, the, this next young one can come watch the sheep. So he's out watching the sheep. It's not, he's not the one that anybody thought it would be, but God says, you know, they send for him, and he comes in and... uh they say, yes, he's anointed as king. So he's, he's probably, you know, fairly, fairly young guy. Um, they anoint him from king, as king. The prophet goes back to wherever he came from. Everybody looks around and goes, now what do we do? They just go back to what they were doing. Next day, David gets up, goes back out with the sheep, taking care of the sheep. So... We know here that God has a vision for him as king, that God has a plan for him to be the king, but the position is not available. In fact, somebody else already is the king, and if he even mentions it, you know, he could get his throat cut. Okay, so he just has to keep on doing what it is that he's doing. Um, 
It tells us in chapter 16, let's see, uh, this is where Samuel took this flask of oil and anointed him with his brothers standing around and watching. The Spirit of God entered David like a rush of wind, and God vitally empowered him for the rest of his life. And then Samuel left and went home to Ramah. At the very moment the Spirit of God left Saul, and in its place a black mood sent by God settled on him. He was terrified. So at the same time that the Spirit of God, in this day there wasn't the Holy Spirit, so the Spirit of God would kind of just settle on people. So there was a kingly anointing that had been on Saul, but it transferred onto David. And it made Saul in a bad mood because he didn't have that, he didn't have the presence, he couldn't feel the presence of God. He didn't have that anointing anymore. So he, he was in a bad mood. And uh, David goes back out to the field with the sheep. I would venture to say he might have been in a good mood. I don't, he might not have because, you know, he's just, he's just taking care of sheep. We know some things that David did while he was out there. We know that he was a musician, that he, at some point he learned how to play a musical instrument while he was out there. And we know that he wrote songs. We know that in his later life he wrote, this, he wrote psalms and songs. So he's out there. His job is to watch the sheep. He's doing that, but he can also sing and watch sheep, he's figured out. He can also play this little instrument that he's got and watch sheep. So he's not just sitting there like a lump. He's becoming, he's giving expression to God coming, you know, coming through him. He's, he's allowing that, he's allowing himself to be, you know, challenged. So he's, um, he's not, what he's not doing is he's not playing spades on his iPhone. Okay? In our culture, we don't give, you know, and, and oh, I bet he's doing this. I bet he's thinking about being the king. Because, I mean, Samuel shows up, pours the oil on him. He still can smell the oil. They said, you're going to be the king. And he's probably thinking, man, I imagine his imagination is just really working. He's thinking deep thoughts about what it'd be like to be the king. What is, what is the king actually? Like when I said, am I the king, queen of England? I don't even know what the queen of, queen of England does. I don't know how much David knew about what the king actually does. But he had lots of time to think about it thinking about being the king, thinking about what he might do. You know, you play a game. What would you do if you were the president? What would you do if you won the lottery? You know, those kind of things. You know, we get our mind going. It's really good for it to, you know, to think about those things and to, to let, let go deep place. So I bet David was out there. He's singing to God. He's learned how to play an instrument. He sings songs to God. You know, the kind of psalms that, that we have from him are things like, you know, that I could, just, I could picture him saying, you know, Oh, God. They said, I'm going to be a king. What does a king even do? You know, I'll be a king for you. I mean, just, you know, just whatever your thoughts are, you know, just singing that. There's nobody around. The sheep don't mind. They just, you know, they don't mind. So he's out there and he's got all this time on his hands. He's thinking, he's pondering, he's got this vision. But he's, you know, there's, there's still something for him to do. There's still things for him to learn. He's not ready to be. They didn't just, you know... They could have anointed him one day, and a week later, Saul could have fallen over with a heart attack. And Samuel could have come and got him, and take, but that's not what happened. There was this long process. There was a lot of time in there. So anyway, he's out there playing. This black mood comes on the current king. He's just, you know, not doing well at all. One of his servants says, "What? Well, we need to get somebody in here to play music for you, and that'll help you feel better. That'll lift that bad spirit you've got on you. And, uh, Somebody says, oh, I know, some, I know somebody, I've heard him play. Let's go get, so turns out it was David. It, this was an opportunity. God opened a door, an opportunity, and he's coming in and playing for the king. So when the king gets in a bad mood, they call for David. He takes care of the sheep, and then when the king's in a bad mood, they call for him, and he plays. And, you know, and he, the king probably doesn't know him, may not even see him. He might be behind a screen or, you know, what he doesn't really know him, but it helps. Because why does it help? Because David has a purpose. There's a call on his life. The Spirit of God is on him. He comes in and he does the thing that he knows to do. The thing that he's been practicing doing in this time that he spent alone and with God. So he comes in and plays and it soothes the king. And then he goes, he goes back to the sheep. And they just call him when he need, he doesn't live at the palace. And they just call him when they need him and then he goes back to the sheep. So then we know that, when, then we have the story about um, Goliath the uh, champion of the Philistines, and um, he was taunting the armies of God, 
and three of David's brothers had gone out, had joined the army, so they were they were out there. And one day, David's uh, dad says, "You know, I want you to take some bread and some cheese and go find out how your brothers are and see what's happening." And so he got, now think about, you know, here is this kid. He's been out in the uh, the field. He's been thinking about being the king. He sometimes gets to go in the palace, so he he has a glimpse of what it looks like and how the servants act, and so he's you know he's getting a little bit of a picture, and then you know and he goes back and he sings about it and he thinks about it some more. So now that now that his dad's sending him to go check on his brothers and see what's happened, so he gets there. Uh, it says a giant nearly ten feet tall stepped out from the Philistine line into the open. Goliath from Gath. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was dressed in armor, 126 pounds of it. He wore bronze shin guards and carried a bronze sword and his spear was like a fence rail. The spear tip alone weighed over 15 pounds. His shield bearer walked ahead of him. Goliath stood there and called out to the Israelite troops, why bother using your whole army? Am I not Philistine enough for you? And you're all committed to Saul, aren't you? So pick your best fighter and put him up against me. If he gets the upper hand and kills me, the Philistines will all become your slaves. But if I get the upper hand and kill him, you'll all become our slaves and serve us. I challenge the troops of Israel this day. Give me a man. Let us fight it out together. When Saul and his troops heard the Philistines' challenge, they were terrified and lost hope. So David comes on the scene. Remember, he's been out there thinking about what it'd be like to be king. He's got, you know, he's got this vision that's still, that's still working. Um, he hears that, and oh boy, it just rises up in him. What? What? What are y'all doing? Y'all aren't, you know, y'all gonna let him talk to us like that? Hey, we're the army of God. You know, this is the army of God. I can't believe y'all are just letting him come out because he's doing this thing, this little speech every day. He comes out every day and says, "Send me somebody." So he's like, David's just, you know, he he's appalled that this man is, you know, defying the army of God that nobody's doing anything about it, that they're all just kind of cowering down in fear. He just can't even believe, what are y'all doing? What are y'all? His brothers got mad at him because he's like, just shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. But David's been thinking about being the king. He's been pondering on that. He, you know, and God has placed that heart within him as he thinks about being king. So when that uh, Philistine comes up and issues a challenge, the challenge really goes to the head of the, Phil- the Israelite army. It really goes out to the king. You know, who send one man to fight me. That really may, means it's up to the king, which should have been King Saul. But Saul's scared, and he didn't have a plan, and he didn't know what to do, and he's not willing to go. So David just comes by to bring some bread and cheese, and he's like, let me at him. I'll take him. I'll do it. I'll, you know, and everybody's like, because there's all these people. There's all these armies, his older brothers, these older people, and they're, nobody's volunteering. volunteering. Why did David volunteer? He volunteered because there was something placed in his heart, a vision that God placed in his heart of being the king. It was the king's responsibility to step up. It was the king's place to step up. It was the king's place, the, the king of Israel's place to be offended on behalf of God and to say, this has got to stop. This is not okay. I'm not good with this. You know, it, it has to end. He began, you now this is the, the first real opportunity we saw that he begins to step into position it's not an outward position it's a position in his heart it's a position in his soul he's been getting ready he's been doing what he knew to do out out there in the in the pasture and now there's this challenge it's an opportunity you know he didn't stop and go oh who am i you know what who am i he just the indignation just rose up in him and so he says uh he starts, you know, saying all this, you know, asking questions. What, you know, what, why are y'all, why are y'all just standing here? Why didn't anybody? Do and so the word got back to Saul that he's asking that. And they brought David before Saul. And, uh, he says, Master, don't give up hope. I'm ready to go and fight the Philistine. That's how it says it in the message. I'm ready to go. And, uh, Saul says, you can't go and fight this Philistine. You're too young and inexperienced. And he's been at this fighting business since before you were born. This guy was born to fight. <laughs> you know, his purpose was as a fighter. He'd been in the army, you know, his, his, all, probably all of his adult life. And David said, I've been a shepherd tending sheep for my father. Okay. He's a professional fighter. You've been a shepherd tending sheep. You know, 
Maybe his perception was not <laughs> what it needed to be. But then he goes on and he says, whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I'd go after it, knock it down, and rescue the lamb. Oh, had a little bit of experience with fighting, you know, when I was there. If it turned on me, I'd grab it by the throat, wring its neck, and kill it. Lion or bear, didn't make any difference to me. I killed it. And I'll do the same to this Philistine pig who's taunting the troops of God alive. God who delivered me from the teeth of the lion and the claws of the bear will deliver me from this Philistine. So he rehearsed. He has the vision in his heart. Here's the opportunity. The indignation rises up. That's, that, would, that would be the place of a king. And he says, I've got some experience. He reached back and he said, well, I killed the lion and I killed the bear. You know, and this is not acceptable. It was a work that was going... Now, he had the opportunity at this point. It was an opportunity. He had the choice at this time to keep his mouth shut, to back down, to not act on it, to be... You know, they were all scared. Who wouldn't be scared? I'm sure he was scared. You know, this is... But that indignation, that righteous indignation was bigger than the fear. The call of God inside him was bigger, you know, or he had let that be bigger. He um, encouraged himself. He probably, when he said this to the king, I killed the lion, I killed the bear, he'd already been telling that to himself. Okay, I'm going to see the king, I killed the lion. One time I, one time I killed that lion, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and one time, you know, and so he's encouraging himself, you know, on the way. He's changing his mind, if you will, because, you know, in his mind, in anybody else's mind, he's not up for this job. But in God's mind, in God's vision, He's, he's actually the very guy for the job. Uh, so Saul says, go, and God help you. Why on earth would the king send this young boy in to fight the Philistine? Because he didn't have any other plan. And it was supposed to be his job, and he wasn't willing to do it. So he says, you know, go ahead. And now he's going to help him. He's going to give him all his armor and everything. And David said, I can't, you know, I can't do it with all this stuff. This stuff is too heavy. So uh, he he gets, let's see. Oh, I think it might be worthwhile to read a little bit of this. David took his shepherd's staff and he selected five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in the pocket of his shepherd's pack. And with his sling in his hand, he approached Goliath. So he got the weapons he was familiar with. He got the tools that he was used to using, the tools he'd practiced with when he was out in the pasture watching after the sheep, this is what he used. So he got what he was familiar with, what he practiced with, what he knew. He knew, I know how to shoot this thing. How many hours do you think he'd had a slingshot and he'd tried to hit olives off an olive tree or whatever was there, you know, because it's bore, it'd be boring out there. After he sang, all his throat could, you know, his voice could sing. Then he probably tried, so he knew he's a pretty good shot with a, sling so he so he goes and he gets what he's familiar with he gets he's prepared he God's already prepared him for this and so he gets the the smooth stones puts them in his pocket of his shepherd's pack and then with his sling in his hand he approaches Goliath uh as the Philistine paced back and forth his shield bearer in front of him no he as the Philistine Philistine paced back and forth his shield bearer in front of him he noticed David he took one look down on him and sneered, a mere youngster, apple-cheeked and peach fuzz. The Philistine really ridiculed David. Am I a dog that you come after me with a stick? And he cursed him by his gods. Come on, said the Philistine. I'll make roadkill of you for the buzzards. I'll turn you into a tasty morsel for the field mice. He's making fun of him. You're a kid. You're coming at me with a stick? Please. This, is this a joke? And David answered and said, You come at me with a sword and spear and a battle axe, and I come at you in the name of the God of the angel armies, the God of Israel's troops, whom you curse and mock. This very day God is handing you over to me. I'm about to kill you, cut off your head, and serve up your body and the bodies of your Philistine buddies to the crows and coyotes. The whole earth will know that there's an extraordinary God in Israel. And everyone gathered here will learn that God doesn't save by means of sword or spear. The battle belongs to God. He's handing you to us on a platter. Whoa! That was, you know, that was an anointed little speech there. He was, he was outmanned. He was outnumbered. He was out, uh, he was probably out 
cursed, <laughs> you know, to, to, you know, I mean, this guy was, you know, th- he'd been throwing out these curses, and David just came in, it, it, the Spirit of God just came upon him, and he says, no, I'm coming you, to you in the name of God, because God had called him and presented an opportunity, and he said yes. He stepped up to the plate, and he said yes. That roused the Philistine, and he started toward David. And David took off from the front line, running toward the Philistine. I bet there were thoughts going through his mind like, what have you done? Oh my goodness, you made a mistake. It's not too late to back out. But he starts running towards him. He's, you know, he's committed, he's in this. He reached into his pocket for a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine hard in the forehead, embedding the stone deeply. The Philistine crashed face down in the dirt. Dirt. That's how David beat the Philistine with a sling and a stone. He hit him and killed him. No sword for David. Then David ran up to the Philistine and stood over him, pulled the giant sword from its sheath, and finished the job by cutting off his head. When the Philistines saw their great champion was dead, they scattered, running for their lives. I'm going to skip down a little bit. And it says at the end of uh, chapter 17, when Saul saw David go out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, tell me about this young man's family. So he didn't recognize David. David's been coming to play, but he doesn't know him. He didn't recognize him. And Abner says, for the life of me, O king, I don't know who it is. The king said, well, find out the lineage of this raw youth. And as soon as David came back from killing the Philistine, Abner brought him the Philistine's head still in his hand straight to Saul, and Saul asked him, Young man, whose son are you? I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the one who lives in Bethlehem. By the time that David had finished reporting to Saul, Jonathan was deeply impressed with David. Remember, Jonathan is Saul's son. An immediate bond was forged between them, and he became totally committed to David. From that point on, he would be David's number one advocate and friend. Saul received David into his own household that day, no more to return to the home of his father. So this opportunity put him in a different position. Where would you like to be in five years? He's in a new position. But it's not about where he is as much as it's about who he is and who he's becoming and who he's, you know, has, you know, has become. So now he's a step closer. He's not just visiting every once in a while to play an instrument. He's actually living in the king's house. And he's best buds with the king's son, Jonathan. So what are the things that he's learning here? He's learning about friendship. In the, in, as a shepherd boy, he learned about how, how to have a relationship with God and how to be okay with himself and who God had called him to be. Then he's in the king's palace and he's learning how to be a friend, how to be Jonathan's friend, how to respond to the king, to how to operate in this. So he's learning new things in a different place. Um, so... David became a fighter. He was there. He was being trained as a fighter, probably training with Jonathan. And so then he began to go out to war, and uh, the people all loved David. They said, um, the lady sang, Saul kills by the thousand, David by the ten thousand. As he by-. So then Saul becomes jealous. Everything David did, or Saul becomes jealous. Everything David did turned out well. God was with him. Then we go in another chapter, and it says, Saul hated David. Because he was, he became jealous. But David's just being who he's called to be. Well, here comes somebody who, if anybody had the power to ruin God's plan for your life, this guy had the power to ruin. It. And he begins to try to hunt David. I'm going to kind of skip through, and um, he he threw a spear at him, and uh, the spear stuck in the wall, and David got away. He did that two different times. Um, finally, David had to run and was living in um, caves. And what was he learning there? All the people that were desperate and that didn't have, you know, any means or anything, that were outcasts, they were coming to him. So he was learning how to be a leader in the caves, how to think of his men, how to figure out how he was going to provide for them, how to, be, how to have leadership qualities there living in the cave, and um, what to do with Saul. I mean, he, he was a hunted man. He was being actually pursued by King Saul to be killed. So we know that story of at one point, David and this, his group of men were in the cave. Saul was out hunting with hunting David with his armies. Saul comes into the cave to go to the bathroom. David's men, they're all back there in the shadows. They're like, get him, get him. God's delivered him. Who wouldn't have thought that maybe that was the case? So David, he didn't want to kill him, but he cut off the end of his garment. 
So one thing that David was learning in the cave and with these men was honor and respect for authority. You know, then when Saul got out, David felt so bad about cutting off the edge of the robe, the the, pre, the kingly robe, that he, you know, he called out and he said, I, you know, I'm sorry, I cut this off. I would not kill you. I just wanted to prove to you that I wouldn't kill you. And, you know, because he, he felt guilty about even just that. Anybody would say, oh, he deserved to kill him. That would be a person, that would be a David that had not gotten that healing in his, in, you know, in his brain for the things Saul has tried to kill him and now he has an opportunity to kill him back. But David had forgiven. He'd found a way to forgive that. He was not out for to try to, you know, to try to kill somebody else. He had found healing. David is um, on this road to being a whole person, a healed person, a forgiving person, a thankful person. So at that moment when he shows the edge of the, the coat to King Saul, King Saul was, you know, he it, it actually moved him. Um, let's see what it says. Uh, let's see. When David had finished saying this, Saul said, can this be the voice of my son David? And he wept in loud sobs. You're the one in the right, not me, he continued. You've heaped good upon me, and I've dumped evil on you. And now you've done it again, treated me generously. God put me in your hands, and you didn't kill me. Why? When a man meets his enemy, does he send him down the road with a blessing? May God give you a bonus of blessings for what you've done for me today. I know now beyond a doubt that you will rule as king. The kingdom of Israel is already in your grasp. Now promise me under God that you will not kill off my family or wipe my name off the books. And David promised Saul. So what an amazing story. And because he was whole, because he'd allowed God to work in his life and to make him you know, who he needed to be, it's just moving him. It's like we can read the story quickly and we can go, oh, well, you know, God was working things out. God was working things out. God did have that vision of David as the king, but, but David had a part to play. There was a continual part to play, keeping his heart in the right place, keeping his mind in the right place, you know, do, and he was learning things along the path to prepare him for being the king. I don't know. It seems like, I don't know how much time we got. It seems like it's, I've been up here a long time, but um, I'll, I'll kind of kind of finish up. Since I wrote down, um, let's see, three weeks ago was when Dusty talked about that, and uh, I wrote down, I just, in my journal, I thought, well, I'm just going to write down a vision of who I want to be in five years. And um, I, I'm thinking that I might read this to you and share this with you. And it was just, you know, writing in your journal. So you think nobody's ever going to read it or, or see it or anything. So, And it won't be the vision of, of who you want to be in five years. But I just kind of wanted to read it to you to give you an example of if we write these things down, that it can make a difference. Because as David knew in his heart that, that he was supposed to be king, and as he thought about it, it's like things can happen. So this is what I wrote, and I wrote this January 29th. My goal, I want to be a fit and healthy person of about X pounds, eating real whole foods. I want to be instrumental in helping my friends and family partake of that healthy eating lifestyle and have a part in creating healthy real food, raw milk, pasture-raised chickens, free-range eggs, fruits and vegetables. I want to have enough income that continues to meet my needs and for giving to church and family and friends is a blessing through rental income, farm income, and our salary. I want to be working in ministry and envision it being part-time so I can spend more time with family, friends, and church. I realize that it might be I could work full-time in a New Horizon ministry and accomplish the goal of spending time with friends, family, and church simultaneously. That would still qualify as meeting the goal. I want to help people process their trauma through TRT counseling and teach kids. I want to have my home and farm more redeemed, buildings maintained, fences adequate to do their job, barn functional, water availability, house repairs, and remodeling done. I want to know my children and grandchildren, and I want them to know me. I want to be a blessing to my children, grandchildren, and friends by supporting them to carry their burdens and responsibilities as well as adding extras to their lives. I want great familial relationships with my family members and any others that God would choose to add as family. 
I want to make a difference in my world for God's kingdom. I want to help create healthy, whole people in body, soul, and spirit. I want to leave this world better for having been here. And so I wrote that January 29th. And since that time, Dusty asked me to fill the pulpit this morning, which I don't, I always say I'm not doing that ever again because it makes me so excited <clears throat> or nervous. Um, anyway, so he asked me to do that. Well, because I've been reading this vision again, so it's like I read this and I go, oh, okay, well, standing here, fulfill the vision of the goal of who I want to be in five years? Yes, it will. Because if I want to be in ministry and I want to, you know, give and serve my family, my friends, and you know, okay, i got to do that. Um, the next thing is I offered to be a foster parent to a child at school. I told my principal that, you know, sign me up if they end up, because there's a placement and they may need a place and they may not, and I've never thought about that, never done that. But when we were talking about it and I was standing there with her, I thought about the part that says to my fa- be in relationship with my family and anyone that God chooses to add to my family. So I had that consciousness of, he's probably going to, you know, add some people to my family. I need to be aware of that. So I just, you know, I just said, yeah, well, you know, tell the caseworker if, you know, that doesn't work out and they need somebody, you know, a foster. That is so out of my comfort zone. You know, it's not, but I can, I attribute it to, because I had the goal written down, because I've been thinking about this and reading this, that it, you know, it, it came from that. The, um, another thing that I, I, did is I volunteered, somebody had mentioned something about um, wanting counseling, and so I volunteered to walk them through TRT counseling. Well, in my mind, I'm not necessarily ready to do that because I want to have some, you know, more training and, you know, more training, which I, but when somebody's standing there saying, well, you know, there's a need for counseling, and I know that the vision that God placed in, in me is to counsel, how can you not say, well, if they want to, I'll do it. And, you know, it's just that looking for those opportunities. Is this an opportunity that God's presenting for me to be that person that I, that I want to be in five years? Because if I don't take those opportunities, if I don't step into those when the door opens, if I don't, whatever's rising up in me, because I, I tend to be, I think a lot of things, but I don't volunteer or I don't say or I go home and I think it to death and then I think it's, you know, and I'm one of those that thinks too much and doesn't act on things. So it helps me be intentional to have it written down. And as I go over it each day and then as an opportunity arises and I'm thinking, oh, oh, I'm, you know, I'm fearful, but gosh, you know, this is, this is a need. And if I'm the person that's supposed to help fulfill these needs, if I'm the person that's supposed to do this, if this will get me to that place of walking in God's purpose for my life, if this will get me to that place that I want to be in five years, I'm not just going to go along life doing everything I'm doing the same and wake up in five years and be in this place. It's going to be a process and I have to work with it. So I, I just share that with you just to, oh, and I have one more thing. I was, um, one of the quotes that Dusty used, which, and I didn't write it down, and I don't know who quoted it or anything, but he said, it was talking about goals, um, that rather than rise, it was something kind of like this, this paraphrase, that rather than rise to the goals we set, we generally will fall back on the systems that we put in place. And I've thought about that a lot as well. Um, so I have this big lofty goal, but I've been trying to think of what systems can I put in place so that I actually, you know, you know what what I am what I'm actually going to do. And I was um, reading this thing about a uh, co- uh, habit coach. Never knew there was such a thing, but this habit coach. And so he gets these clients, and he's helping them change their habits. And so this journalist decided that she was going to see how it works, so she could write an article about it. And uh, he told her to pick a habit that she would like to incorporate in her life, a goal that she would like to have in her life. And she picked that she wanted to run for exercise. She wanted to, you know, go running um, on a daily basis for exercise. And he said, all right, well, the thing that most people do is that they bite off this big thing and you have to bite off a little tiny bit and then you can do it. So he told her that what he wanted her to do, well, she needed, he said, you need to have a time that you can put something to help you remember it. So he said, what do you do the first thing when you wake up, she said, well, I'll turn off my alarms. And he said, okay. And then what do you do after that? And she said, well, I get up and I stumble in the kitchen and I turn on the coffee pot. And he said, okay, perfect. He said, after you turn on the coffee 
coffee, after you turn on the coffee pot every morning, I want you to put on your running shoes. He's just like, I don't have time to go, you know, running after, I've got to go get the kids up, and I've got my head, you know, and, and he said, no, all I want you to do is put on your running shoes. And she's like, why? I don't, you know, he said, just, we're starting small, so just get up. When you turn the coffee pot on, put on your running shoes. So she gets up the next morning, and she, you know, someone, she turns the coffee pot, and she, you know, okay, so she gets her shoes, and she puts her shoes on, and she goes about her, you know, she goes about her day, and the next morning, the same, you know, her, her daughter's like, why do you have your running shoes on? Well, because, you know, one of these days, I'm going to go running. Are you going to run today? No, I've just got my running shoes on today, you know, and it didn't make, but see what she's doing. She's in her, she, in her, Ver, with her verbal, she's planting that seed even to herself, and it becomes a little, we talk to ourselves with self-talk. So she's saying to her daughter, I'm going to go running. She probably, she probably hadn't said that before, that I'm going to go running, but now she's got the crazy shoes on, so what's your, what's your excuse? So she says, I'm going to go running. And like a whole week passes, and the coach calls her and says, well, how's it going? And she says, well, I haven't been running. He said, no, that wasn't the goal. The goal was just to put the shoes on. Have you put the shoes on? She said, well, yeah. He said, well, how much did you put the shoes on? She said, I put the shoes on every day this week after I turned on the coffee pot. And he says, yay. And he clapped for and, you know, said, give yourself, you know, have yourself a party. You achieved your goal. And she's thinking, okay. But, you know, it doesn't seem. So they start, he said, all right, keep doing it. And she said, well, I'm supposed to, no, she said, no, just put the shoes on. So she gets up, you know, she does, she does it the next week. So one day, she's got her running shoes on, and she's getting the kids ready, and, um, you know, her husband's there, and they're, you know, all getting ready, trying to get out the door, and uh, her husband, her, her, I think her daughter spilt something, and then the husband started fussing, and the situation there in the kitchen was just, she's just like, I can't handle it. And so she, she said, I'm out of here. And she walked and she ran out the door and she went for a run. Now, the reason that she was, you know, she came back and she had, you know, I don't know how, it doesn't say how, she, how far she went or anything, but she had her shoes on. She told everybody that she was going to go run. She told herself that she was going to be running. She had done, you know, she'd done all this preparation. And then one day, I guess when running sounded better than cleaning up the cereal bowl mess, you know, running must have sounded better. And so... She took that opportunity to go running. And so, so, you know, I guess I say that to say as we set these goals, if we put our systems in of, you know, how are we, how are we going to do that? What, you know, and little bite-sized things. So when we think about David, it was all these little things that he was learning and that he was doing and that he was becoming. It was who he's becoming. So when the time did come for him to stand as king, he was prepared and he was ready to be the king. So I guess, you know, I just wanted to encourage y'all to um, pick that up again if you haven't already about who do you want to be in five years and, you know, maybe write it down. Just, you know, sit down and write whatever, you know, whatever you think it would be and then look over that and, and read that and then when those opportunities present themselves or, you know, what you, you might think, I even look at mine and I go, well, all right, what system can I do, can I institute to help this one or what? So you can actually almost propel yourself into being that person um, as you look at her or you take the opportunities or whatnot. And that's all I have. So I will close this in prayer unless anybody has anything to say. Anybody have anything to say? going to close us in prayer and y'all have a great week heavenly father thank you that um you have provided everything that we need and and not only that you create us with a very specific purpose and plan uh, for our lives i thank you father that there's every possibility that we can walk out that plan that we can become that person that you envisioned us to be there's every possibility that we can walk in wholeness and that we can um, take up those opportunities as you present them, as because we're being because we're being aware and we're being mindful, Lord. I ask Father that you would show us this week systems that we can put in place, things that we can turn off, things that we can turn on, things that we can you know do. Not because it's a works thing, but 
with the goal in mind of being who you created us to be. Because we know, Lord, that when we're that person that you created us to be, that you envision us to be, we'll be, um, we'll have purpose, we'll be fulfilled, we'll be happy, we'll face challenges, but we'll, we'll be equipped by you to overcome those challenges and they will work for our good. They will teach us things we need to know and make us more equipped to be who you called us to be. So, Father, I ask for this body that you would just um, teach us what is the hope of your calling, who you've called us to be individually, and how we can be the person that you created us to be. Change our minds and change our hearts and change our habits, Lord, to line us up so that we can be you in this world. We ask, Father, that you'd manifest yourself through us today and tomorrow and in five years from now in greater and greater measure. I pray a blessing on these people and ask that you would um, just show yourself mighty in them and through them as their week progresses. In Jesus' name, amen.